don't know that the that the science itself always makes it into the story. I mean, there's definitely short stories and and longer works where it has, but mostly I think where it's been useful is, you know, the the process of scientific research and and generating, you know, new scientific work and papers and doing scientific communication is not all that different from writing fiction is you just have to take an enormous amount of information, um, sort of vet it for what's useful and what's true and what's conjecture and see who's producing it and what their motivation is and what's novel about it. And then take that, that big shapeless mass and kind of pull the things out of it that you think are interesting and good and put them together in new ways. So, you know, A, that's science, but also B, that's, that's fiction. Um, that's every type of fiction, not just spectic. So it's, it's not so much the science itself as kind of the worldview and the ability to research and the ability to um, sense uh, and evaluate what's what kind of lights you up about, about the background information that's coming in. So it's, it's more a vibe than anything. What is up, everybody? You're listening to episode 92 of SFF Addicts. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and welcome to your weekly dive into the world of science fiction, fantasy, and writing craft. Joining me as always is my co-host, the Chewie to my Han Solo, the Joker to my Commander Shepard, MJ Kuhn. How's it going, MJ? Hello, I am great. How are you? Doing swell. Got a little bit of a nasally voice today because Oliver got sick, so, you know, shit happens, but it's all good. Yeah. You're, you're, you're nursing the bug. <laughs> I'm coasting, man. I'm just coasting. <laughs> and if you want to support this lovely MJ and her work, you can pick up Among Thieves, The Little Blue Baby, and The Big Baby. <laughs> Thick Ass Big Baby. Thieves, the sequel. So if you want to <laughs> like the same size. <laughs> they are the same. Actually, Thick Ass Thieves is small. If you want a fun time full of heists and found family and all kinds of awesome action then go pick up mj's duology which is complete so you can start it and finish it and it's super fast paced and you're gonna love it as well you can check out some stuff for my debut novel mushroom blues which is out on march 19th uh last week when this episode airs we did a map reveal for the map of neo kanoka which is the city where that story takes place as well you can read chapter one over at before we go blog um which yeah, if you read that and you like it, there's more to come. Right, so then you worry. are all yeah. set, baby. <laughs> yeah, there's some hot shit coming. <laughs> As well, a quick note for listeners, the official SFF Addicts Patreon and merch store are live. So check out the links in the description to support what we do here. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the FanFidic YouTube channel where this and every other episode of the show is available in full video. Also, a quick shout out to our news patrons, Matt Mahoney and David Meyer Henry. Thank you so much for sh- supporting the show. And now, welcoming today's guest, Premi Mohammed, scientist and award-winning author of the Void Trilogy. We speak through the mountain, the siege of burning grass, and so much more. Hello, Premi. Welcome back to SFF Addicts after almost like, a, I don't know, two years, a year and a half. Two years, more than a year. <laughs> yeah, thank you yeah, guys so much while. for inviting me back. 
Yeah, it's been, it's, you were on episode six, which was on, uh, climate change and climate fiction, which was one of the first episodes that we did, uh, back when we were doing panels and stuff at the beginning of the show's, uh, run, but yeah, I'm glad that we get the chance to sit down and have a little one-on-one and be more intimate and, and just talk about your books as opposed to a broader topic. Yeah, I'm excited. All right. Well, um, let's start off with an introduction for listeners who aren't familiar with you and your work. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I think we we kind of covered the important parts in the bio. But yeah, uh, my background is as a scientist. Uh, I was trained in molecular genetics and environmental science. Uh, and I'm also an author of sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and kind of all of the above mashed into one. Um, I am indeed the author of The Void Trilogy, which was by Solaris Books, um, and several novellas and a ton of short fiction. And in 2024, uh, I have five books coming out because my editors did not get into a group chat and let each other know when things were being scheduled. <laughs> no, but you also are publishing through multiple multiple uh, publishing houses. So that's... Yes, but five. I five. Know, five are, is that's like, insane. Wow. That's an insane amount of releases. I mean, A, exciting, but B, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm preemptively tired and the first one hasn't even come out yet <laughs> at, at the time of this recording. <laughs> right, <Yeah>. right. <laughs> Man, that's that. No, that is pretty crazy. Like, no, like I can't even imagine promoting one book is a lot. But yeah. at this point, you're like cross promoting multiple books at the same time. On yeah, well, that's what I would say. Like, platforms. I even remember like promoting the one while I was trying to write a different one was hard. But yeah. you know what I mean when you're trying to promote one and then you have another one coming out. Oh my gosh, yeah. But well, and, and also like the public, the publishing, like the timeline thing where you're trying to promote one while the sequel is in edits, while you're working on like a third one and you're trying to keep the story straight in your head and the interviewer is going no spoilers and i'm like i don't know what a spoiler is anymore <laughs> right? i don't like, know i don't even remember this I is just remember. like my general existence what do you want yeah like they're like so tell us about this scene i'm like i wish i could i wrote it like three years ago right? i i don't know what you're talking <laughs> like, about i'm so I sorry that it's in the book yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you say it's in the Things book happened probably is in the book. I like, will take I your word for you. it. I believe you. Yeah. Why don't you tell me about yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> Flip the tables. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the theme of the book is? Mm. Oh, there you go. Then just kind of go yeah. eyebrow about it. I dig it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're learning our, our our witchcraft of how to do interviews yeah. right here. I, I think this is this is going to be my 2024 goal is to just make the interviewer do all the work while I sit there and like nod. I love it. All right, no pressure, Adrian. Let's People go. People be like, yeah, like we haven't heard from Premi in a while. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> like, These hosts won't shut up. God. <laughs> well, I can hear is the sound of like paper flipping. It's like she's quizzing them or something. Yeah. Paper <laughs> flipping. Good thing yeah. it's an open book test. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Before we dig deeper into the episode, a quick word from our sponsor. Novello is an exciting new publishing and reading platform whose goal is to be the go-to for all things writing and storytelling. Their platform offers an intuitive, user-friendly way for writers to create and share their awesome stories for readers to enjoy, all while maintaining total control over their stories. Everything from the content to cover art and pricing is all controlled by the story's author. 
Novello also offers social features such as message boards, direct messaging, and a news feed where you can post updates to your followers. With future plans including support for comics and a marketplace for users to sell other writing-related services, the future of this platform is looking bright. And the best part? It's all available for free. No sign-up fees, no membership, just a growing library of epic tales. Sign up now to bask in the magic of books, where you can enjoy tales like Blackwater, an epic adventure by an award-winning author, or Limbo, the door above the lake, a terrifying battle for survival. Whether you're a casual reader or a professional writer, Novello is the place for you. Visit them at novello.com. That's N-O-V-E-L-O.com. And now, enjoy the rest of this episode of SFF Addicts. Well, we have to dive into your nerd origins because we always like to do that on the show because um, it's one of my favorite things to talk to other nerds about like what was the first or one of the early like speculative fiction books you remember reading when you were a kid or however old you were when when you first picked one up um do you remember which book or books or movies even whatever it was that made you fall uh, in love with the genre first of all i'm not a nerd i'm super cool i don't hang out with those <laughs> well, like sci-fi and fantasy people <laughs> yeah no um God, I think, so aside from like the early like TV shows that I was extremely obsessed with, like Ghostbusters and He-Man, which, you know, how are you supposed to avoid that? Um, uh, I also, uh, when I was like quite young uh, at the library, I remember picking up the first book in the Chronicles of Prydain series by Lloyd Alexander. Um, so that series was like my very, very first real like, fantasy obsession uh i didn't get into like lord of the rings and stuff like that you know the the older canon stuff uh for a couple of years but i think i read uh you know the the chronicles of prydain when i was like yeah six or seven so it sunk into my little impressionable brain like wax and uh yeah so there was there was definitely that there was obviously um you know the hobbit and lord of the rings uh diane duane's young wizard series again like when you read things at that like that very, very impressionable age. And the first book is called, So You Want to Be a Wizard? You're like, well, I better get this. You're like, yes, I do. (laughs) I'm eight years old. I could be a wizard. Exactly. (laughs) It's like you're speaking my language. Let's do this. Yeah, yeah. I loved loved that series. Um, There was a lot of Monica Hughes uh, that I read when I was a very little kid as well. Um, Monica Furlong, the, uh, the Juniper books, also like, maybe completely obsessed with magic and like Celtic mythology and history. So I was really very much like the, you know, the fantasy guy growing up. And it wasn't until I was probably 12 or 13 that I started to get more into sci-fi because there was at least a little bit of that in our school library that I hadn't read. So uh, yeah, then it was, you know, digging into a lot of the kind of like older stuff. And honestly, it wasn't until I was practically in like university that I started getting caught up on sci-fi that was being written at approximately the same time I was reading it (laughs) as opposed to being written in like the seventies or eighties. Yeah. (laughs) Who are some of those like sci-fi classics? I imagine like, like Heinlein or Asimov. Yeah, there's some Heinlein. Uh, tried to get into Asimov, never could. Um, I love Brave New World. Uh, I I loved the island. So I liked a lot of Aldous Huxley. Um, I was reading a lot of JG Ballard. So one of the first books that I read was the drowned world, uh, and then High Rise and, um, you know, We by, by Eugenie uh, Zamyatin, you know, and then 1984, of course, the classic. And 
you know, again, you'll just have to picture me sitting there like 14 or whatever, trying to parse 1984 and being like, so this is set in the future, you know, from when he wrote it. But is this sci-fi or is this like actually horror? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, uh, just just getting just munching into the classics and also a lot of Ursula K. Le Guin back then as well. Uh, More the sci-fi stuff than the fantasy stuff. Weirdly, I didn't start reading her fantasy stuff until honestly, just a couple of years ago, I read a wizard of earth scene for the first time, like two or three years ago. And just, I wish I had read that when I was a little kid, I think that would have fit right in to that, that slot in my mind where all the fantasy was going. Yeah. 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 I was late to that one too, though. Premium. I only read that one as an adult too. And I was like, yeah, how did child me miss this? How did I miss this? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, like you mentioning JG Ballard in the drowned world makes so much sense for like, some of your trajectory in terms of like the stuff that you, some of the stuff that you've written, um, but also like the kind of work that you got involved in, uh, in terms of your scientific career, you know, like working in environmental sciences and kind of Alberta, Alberta, Canada is a very, let's say like ideologically conflicted, uh, place in terms of how people and how corporations approach uh, the environment and and resources and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. obviously in addition to fiction writing, it's like you have that background in science. Uh, you mentioned protein engineering, but how does that highly technical scientific background kind of play into your work and how you approach fiction? Yeah, I don't know that the that the science itself always makes it into the story. I mean, there's definitely short stories and and longer works where it has, but mostly I think where it's been useful is, you know, the the process of scientific research and and generating, you know, new scientific work and papers and doing scientific communication is not all that different from writing fiction, is you just have to take an enormous amount of information, um, sort of vet it for what's useful and what's true and what's conjecture and see who's producing it and what their motivation is and what's novel about it. And then take that, that big shapeless mass and kind of pull the things out of it that you think are interesting and good and put them together in new ways. So, you know, A, that's science, but also B, that's, that's fiction. Um, that's every type of fiction, not just spectic. So it's it's not so much the science itself as kind of the worldview and the ability to research and the ability to um, sense uh, and evaluate what's what kind of lights you up about about the background information that's coming in. So it's it's more a vibe than anything. I like that the method. No, but I like that the methodology is what kind of. Permeates yeah, between that's the, two the most I've ever thought science might be a cool thing. Like I, I always hated science <laughs> in school. I'm so sorry, but like you know, it was because I just like didn't click with it, right? Like whatever teachers I had, I just wasn't vibing with with whatever their energy. Uh, but that makes it sound like you know, so much I can get behind that. <laughs> Where I'm were you when back. I was in I'm, high school? Yeah, I'm just like, I'm going to go back to school. Yeah, right? Here we go. My little backpack on. Well, <laughs> well it's funny because like, like I, I keep thinking, oh, maybe I should go back to school and like freaking learn how to write because I don't have any writing education. And I always end up being like, well, 
you know, at, at work, uh, I, I didn't have imposter syndrome because I had pieces of paper on the wall that said, you know, I have this degree and I have this degree and I have this training and I have this certification and I'm a professional agrologist and blah, blah, whatever. Whereas for writing, um, I kind of sit here and I'm like, well, I kind of taught myself how to write. So it's possible that the instructor wasn't very good. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, but then again, like you had, you had a lot of experience with academic writing and obviously it's not like a one-to-one comparison, but the way that you frame it in terms of that, that methodology and, and the approaches that you can take to me, that makes perfect sense that you'd be able to kind of reconfigure your already trained mind into how can I apply this to fiction? Um, like I used to be a journalist, but it's like, there are ways in which I can take the skills that I learned there and reconfigure them to work within the fiction space. It's like, you know, you don't have the certificates or anything. I don't know how many published writers actually have degrees or like, you see like certifications or anything like yeah, that. I don't MJ, know. Have you met anyone who actually has like a creative writing degree? <laughs> I mean, here's the thing I probably have and they just didn't tell me, you know what I mean? It's like, That's just don't like really people like don't tell you that. Yeah, yeah, it's like because well, that, it's like it. I'm sure it would be helpful. You know what I mean? Or like, uh, I know some uh, some fantasy authors that I'm like, damn, I should have done that. And they like <laughs> majored in early world history, right? When they were in college, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's like it's not the same, but like it's it's applicable, right? They they learn. It's related. Stuff they can. They have an arts degree, basically. Yeah. Right. 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 Whereas, yeah, like, oh, I'm an into marketing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so like, which is also, also very makes... very helpful for being an author. It's like no, it's, it's also makes me think though. Like, so I just I just came back from a three week uh, writing residency in Banff um, at the Banff Institute for the oh, Arts. Banff is so beautiful. Bam, it's so beautiful. Uh, God, there's no oxygen there. Uh, so I just, I spent like the first week just hallucinating. And um, I'm up in the Andes Mountains. You wrote so some me, great shit. Me, like, I probably wrote some great shit. I, I, I'll have to look at the files later, but like there were 13 other people in my cohort and I was the only one who did not have an MFA. We actually had a couple of people who were working on like their PhDs. And the one person who was writing a nonfiction book, a history book, um, I thought, you know, he and I were the only ones who were like, yeah, we're self-taught. We were, we were educated in other fields. And he was like, no, no, I got, I went back to school and I got my MFA like in creative writing, like 10 years ago. I was like, shoot. (laughs) So I was surrounded by MFA people. And I just, um, I spent the whole first week just tensed up being like, wait a minute, wait, okay, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're not, they're not piranhas. They're not actually going to attack and eat me with their little teeth. I mean, they could have been, you were hallucinating. So I was hallucinating. Yeah. I was seeing things all over the place, uh, till, till These my body adjusted like a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, that was, I think that was my first kind of experience of being like, oh, so a lot of spec fic writers actually don't have MFAs, but a lot of lit fic writers do. Um, and that's, and I always remind myself that Gene Wolfe, aside from being one of my favorite authors, also helped invent the machine that makes Pringles. So he never quit his engineering job. He just, he was, he was a very, very good writer and also a Pringles man. I lo- so she we have just two like slicing stories and, and potatoes all at the same yeah, time. Exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I love it. I love it. Well, we talked a little bit earlier about like the elements of horror, right? That blend into 
uh, you know, your, specifically your work, but, you know, you mentioned it with 1984, even like, ooh, is this sci-fi or is this horror? I do think that there's a, a lot of really great intersections of science fiction and horror and the uncanny and all of that stuff. Um, can you talk a little more about blending those genres and the appeal of those kind of horror elements in sci-fi and fantasy to you specifically or, you know, to the audience that you're reaching for? God, I can try. <laughs> I can try. That's a hard question. Um, but no, it's it's like, you know, I horror isn't horror isn't a a genre. I think kind of the way we think of, um, you know, like fantasy as a genre and sci-fi as a genre, and romance as a genre, and mystery as a genre. Horror is like elements that you can add to those other things, also because horror is about intent. Um, it's about it's about emotional intent. It's about the impact you want the work to make. Whereas the other ones, it's more about the elements that are supposed to be in it. Um, so you can add horror elements to other things. And it won't necessarily be a horror book, but it'll just have those aspects. And for me, um, the big one, and this is this is really, really clear in um, horror movies, I think, as well as the writing, but it's, you know, it's visually clearer to, to readers and audiences in movies is the loss of agency. So in a lot of um, genre works, sci-fi, fantasy, uh, what we're hoping to see is very autonomous characters making active choices that push the plot forward. And the plot doesn't go anywhere unless the characters are moving it. Whereas in horror, there's a lot of, um, you know, the characters, they have that autonomy taken away from them by the villain or by circumstance or by being trapped or kidnapped or assaulted or, or chased or something. Um, and, and that actually is the source of the horror. It's horrifying to think that you're no longer in control of the situation. You haven't got control of anything. All you can do is try to survive. So your goals pivot from the start of a horror story usually very early, <laughs> you know, they, you start off with, I want X, I want Y, I want Z. And then suddenly it's, no, I just want to live. And, you know, that's, that's very frightening, but that's also very powerful. That activates something just very lizard brain in us, I think. So in a lot of my work, the horror comes from the antagonist snatching that away. Like the characters no longer have a choice. They no longer have decisions to make. The decisions are being made for them. All they can do is react rather than act. Um, and and I really I really kind of lean into that. Uh, it's something I think about a lot. It's not so much about who the villain is or or what they're aligned with or what their beliefs are or anything like that. It's what they are doing to remove control um from the rest of the characters and how the rest of the characters process that because in a lot of horror movies you don't defeat the bat the big bad right like you just nobody lives maybe one person lives maybe the final girl lives but in general yeah <laughs> but like in general um you know a lot of people die almost everybody dies maybe at the end everybody does die so you're not really left with like a a hopeful, inspiring, uplifting message. All you're left with is the idea that sometimes bad things happen. And, you know, now you are left with the aftermath of this piece of horror literature or, or media. And you, the consumer, have to process it. Now that's mm -hmm. up to you. Uh, which is also horrifying, which is why I don't actually watch horror movies. So... <laughs> 
But like, but, I find them but too the scary. Is, I'm sorry. The thing is, like, <laughs> I do too. That 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 kind of horror activation um, and the feeling of of helplessness and hopelessness actually works so well in genre fiction and in speculative fiction where you can implement that feeling within a contained scene or a chapter or within just like a contained contained sequence of, mm-hmm. of events but still be able to propel the story forward afterward within the expectations of that particular genre or however you want to move the story forward it's not like everybody has to die by the end it's like mm-hmm. no something terrifying can happen and then it can be resolved or you know some questions are left unanswered but there is the ability to move forward through the story and then maybe there's another horrifying moment as well and there's sort of like back and forth chaining of events mm-hmm yeah, it's just like writing writing my book, you know, it's like there's so many mushrooms. I'm like, I have to include body horror at some point. Um, and MJ <laughs> oh, knows. You it's have. Like, yeah, yeah. You and, have. Yeah, and it, it's just very, it's very captivating the way that that those kinds of moments can can mm-hmm. bring Weave a into story. the rest of the story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But at the same mm-hmm. time, just like completely terrify and at the same time enthrall the reader and it's kind of like works for pacing and it works for all these different aspects of storytelling yeah yeah it can be a very good engine like it can push the plot forward if you let it yeah yeah and uh we're going to talk a little bit more uh next week in our master class uh about a particular uh theme but i think broadly speaking a lot of your stories depict pretty uh, complex social themes and issues um but what are some that you are most passionate about uh, exploring through your fiction stuff that you have explored uh, in the past. I don't know. What do you think are some themes don't that you I dare, don't you dare? Turn don't you off. dare? <laughs> Thought that was gonna. You know that would have worked if we hadn't talked about it earlier. Uh, <laughs> would have caught us unawares. I, I came up with that idea. Don't you try that on me? Drop. Uh, yeah, I don't know. See, the thing is, I'm never really thinking about that per se when I write. I'm interested in the story and and the sound of the language and how far I can stretch things before my editor snaps, and which which I think is a valid reason to write uh, is is testing your editor. <laughs> <laughs> but as as I go on, I think the thing I find that I'm most obsessed with really is um, probably colonialism and anti colonialism, and and the idea that it kind of feeds into a lot of the the large scale power struggles in the books that I write, even if it kind of doesn't seem like it, it's a lot more explicit in things like um, you know like like war books. But even where it's not, like um, my upcoming book, The Butcher of the Forest, uh, the war is over, but you have to see what's left. The colonizers still live there. They have built an enormous castle and they're still arresting people for treason and sedition. They're still killing people. Um, they're still, you know, kidnapping people and, and they're still coercing the population to do what they want, despite the fact that the war itself is over. And I just keep thinking about how the effects of being forcibly conquered, the effects of being colonized, even when there is no, say, armed conflict and, and the many different ways that can happen, um, how that just skews the history of countries and people.
people and cultures and values and what that does to the population for generations and whether or not there can ever be a trajectory that recovers what came before. And, you know, I think we're seeing in like in the real world now, that's, it's kind of not possible, especially for places that were colonized, you know, for instance, by the British empire, which again, is like practically everybody. Um, you know, if you look up that map of the countries that the British empire didn't colonize or attempt to colonize, it's like three guys, but it's <laughs> like three individual people living on islands somewhere. And, <laughs> and they were probably like Spanish or Portuguese. So. Yeah. They're probably Spanish or Portuguese. And like, I look at the, you know, and, now, if people are like, well, if you don't like it so much, why are you still part of the Commonwealth? And that's because after you've been colonized and had all of your previous support structures and infrastructure and government and, and everything that made you a community taken away. Now, if you take away the Commonwealth structure, you're like whipping a tablecloth out from underneath a place setting and you can't expect there to not be a mess because there's nothing left because the colonizers took and destroyed all that. Like I look at the country that my parents came from, Guyana, like they were colonized by the, I think the Spanish and then the French and then the Dutch and then the English. And you can see it in all the place names down there. Like we've got family that still lives in Stabrook and I'm like, that's not British. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a Dutch word. Like that's, it's over by the seawall. <laughs> like, okay. And there's a seawall. Yeah. The Dutch built a seawall. Like, and we're in South America. Like, is everybody done with us now, kind of? And, <laughs> and the only reason that there were Indian people down in South America in the first place is because the British dragged them over to work on the sugarcane plantations because, yay, sugar, we need sugar for our tea. Uh, and, you know, that, that was a British person, to be clear. <laughs> <Hold on. laughs> great, that was a great impression. Yeah, you know, and... <laughs> <laughs> like what what would what would our family look like if that had not happened? I wouldn't be here, right? But what would the history of India have looked like if that hadn't happened? What would the history of Guyana have looked like if that hadn't happened? If the British could have just stayed on their island? I don't know. Um I just I think about it a lot because we can't go back and look, but we can look at the aftermath. And speculative fiction is a really good place to do that. I agree. Like you know, I'm, I'm from Canada as well. So it's like Canada's history is very complex in that regard where I live now in Ecuador, the history is very complex in that regard. Like, but then, but then you find these weird sort of like aftermath amalgamations of culture and language, like people in Ecuador using, even though their, their language is Spanish majority, there are indigenous people who also speak Quechua, but there are just native Spanish speakers who have grown up in Ecuador, but Quechua has been become ingrained into the, the dialect of different parts of the country where, you know, like my mother-in-law says Wawa, which is just like the Quechua word for kid or kids. Uh, there's like every year on uh, the holiday Dia de los Muertos, they have wawas de pan, which is just like bread children, which is like a really weird thing to say when you translate it. But it's basically <laughs> like little like bread kids with like icing decorations. And then there's they're oh, like like gingerbread men, like right? gingerbread men. But, yeah. but, it, but it's like it's like, like a sweet same bread. vibe. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, and then, well, like, and then you eat like the children and gingerbread men. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then they're filled with with like chocolate or like guayaba or 
Okay, so way better than Gingerbread Man. Got yeah, it. Yeah, that way, delicious. way, way better. Way yeah, better. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just like it's crazy how how colonialism persists in these ways. But then there are like small, uh, small kind of like rebellions, even if or like it little is, windows into yeah. what it could have been, right? Yeah. Even if it is like the infusion of some sort of like cultural practice or language or what have you, that still persists, even though the oppressors had done everything they could to basically eradicate culture and language and all these different mm-hmm. kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting yeah. to think about. And again, like the reason that I like writing about it specifically in spec fic is because, um, you know, the reader would come to something written in the real world with just so much baggage and so much knowledge um, and so much sort of, um, you know, pre-assumptions before they even get to the book. Whereas we're more in control of that if we say, no, this is a fictional place. Maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's a distant planet or something. Um, You know, so we get to say what the history is. We get to say who colonized who. We get to say how the war went. We got, we get to say, here's what the resistance did, that kind of thing. Um, And not say, you know, this is a one-to-one comparison to, you know, Canada being colonized or whatever. Yeah. But still like the Commonwealth thing in Canada. I mean, I'm sure it's like this for Australians too, but it's like quite from for for most Canadians day-to-day life, it's a pretty meaningless yeah. thing, you know? It's like, yeah, we have the queen on our on our money and and whatnot. soon to be the king. Yeah, there you go. But uh Well, and even our- for publishing, right? C- Canadian books come out with uh North American deals, not uh Commonwealth deals a lot of the time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean like like <laughs> most Canadian authors yeah. are published with American publishing houses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Or or UK. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to talk about the cuz so we talked a little bit about the social issues and societal issues. Uh, I want to talk about scientific uh advancements or ethical debates in the like, science. science career. Yeah, <laughs> science. Um are there things I would imagine there have to be things that you encounter in in your work uh, as a scientist um, that give you ideas for those kind of ethical debates that you might want to explore in your fiction? Have you explored these thought experiments? Like, let's talk about it. Yeah, um, not not a ton, but I do get a lot of ideas from just kind of, um, you know, the the what ifs of science. Uh, certainly for my 2021 novella, The Annual Migration of Clouds, um, I, I was kind of looking at um, the modeling data that we used at work uh, because I was in environmental policy and part of our mandate was basically to try to update our existing policy um, for climate change. So for instance, if we had, you know, for the forest regeneration standards, for instance, if we had been recommending that people plant such and such at this latitude, um, we're actually going to have to change that because it won't be, you know, warm enough for them or it won't be cold enough for them or, uh, there won't be enough water. So we're actually going to recommend this species for the future because we have to picture a future where the changes in climate in Alberta specifically are are continuing and we have no reason to think they would stop. Um, and that's kind of what all the, the data was showing. And I think I got to one particular data set showing when we expected to kind of lose um, our last glacier. And the earliest year for that is really, really soon. It's like 2045. Wow. Um, the yeah. latest the, year those, is those like are, 2070. Those are, glaciers, those are the glaciers up in the Rocky Mountains? Yeah. Which one? So all of them. 
<laughs> so no, that's the, all of them that provide yeah. that provide the most of the drinking water, the drinking for, Alberta. water for British Columbia and for Alberta. Yeah, BC and Alberta. So wow. when I was looking at that data, I was like, well, you know, what if we? Okay, but if you do, if you rerun the model, okay, but if we? So I started thinking, you know, what is that going to look like? And I kind of temporarily went down a path where I was like, what would be required to change everything enough for that to not happen? Um, and then again, I went back into the model and I was like, oh, okay, so we can't do that. We can't do that. It's too late. The dipping point was probably passed in the 80s. Yeah, because it's, like um, it's, like it's like a runaway effect that- Yeah, it's runaway effect. So. As- as much as we can to sort of like yeah mitigate but yeah it's like yeah but 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 especially like the further north you go and the further south you go those effects have been happening for a decades but also b the the tipping points every time they tip something bigger falls over than it does around like the equator and the larger areas around the middle of the globe so um that kind of spurred the writing of the novella honestly so I, i wrote that in 2019 and um, the sequel is actually coming out in um, in June. Who's Ooh. the cover yeah. artist? I I, I always uh, Veronica Park. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Just absolutely gorgeous. I hope we get her for the third book because it's gonna look pretty weird if we don't. Yeah. <laughs> how, how is it? How is it? And I you? and I will be sad. <laughs> I know, I, yeah, to have like that consistency broken. It's like oh shit. But yeah. how has it been for you to kind of like yeah? Because that was. That was what almost like five years ago. Yeah, and then, and then kind of five years, five years since it was published, and then kind of coming back to it in in the new book. Um, not not that that tricky, I guess, um, because we did make the deal for it uh, almost like two years ago, so uh, I I kind of knew that I would be writing a sequel at some point because ECW Press emailed me and was like, hey. <laughs> can you give us two more books? And I was like, can you give me a small amount of money? So we made an agreement to do that. That was just, that um, was just like publishing flattery and all. I was going to say that was a great yeah. enactment of like the publishing vibes. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly, that's pretty much how the email came. My agent was like, oh, come on. <laughs> uh, he's like, they can't possibly think that'll work on us. And I was like, I would love to write two more books. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you know, I, I kind of have been thinking about it. I, I wanted the end of that first book to be completely open as open as possible. I actually wanted it to be so open that I got hate mail about it. I got a little bit. Um, I just really, really wanted for people to not know what happened next. And for that to be the point, because the point of the, the changing climate future is the possibilities actually are endless. Nothing is locked into a single path, not not any of the biogeochemical pathways, none of them. A lot of them, we are guessing. Some of them, our guesses are very good. Some of them, they're less good. So that was what I wanted the end of the book to convey. And anyways, now then I had to write two more books. So, <laughs> so that's been rude. I wanted it to be as open-ended as possible, and then I had yeah. to continue it. And then I had to continue it because they gave me some money. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> Look, I still have to pay the bills while the world is ending. So. Yes. <laughs> what a and mood. If, if you can open people's <laughs> eyes up to it a little bit through the lens of fiction, then that's awesome. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Like I'm trying, I'm trying not to write message books. I'm trying not to write things that feel really preachy or heavy, but I am trying to go into the characters' minds and be kind of like, how would I feel 
if I was living in a place that reminded me constantly every day with everything that I do of what the world was aimed at, what that trajectory was and how it suddenly stopped and what my life was supposed to have looked like um, and how it looks now, you know, ours doesn't do that, you know, because we're still on that trajectory of constant progress and things constantly getting better. Um, you know, and if we stopped being able to do the things that we did in the past, like, oh my God, like put up a concrete building, um, you know, drill a really deep water well. If we stopped being able to do that, we would constantly be angry that we weren't able to do that anymore, that the people of the past took that away from us. Right. And at the same time, the people today who are in sort of like uh, Western civilizations or just like first world uh, nations who are, you know, how would people in less developed countries feel when it's like their ability to do these things that that more civilized countries, more developed countries were able to take advantage of for centuries. And then it's like, oh, you're taking that away from us now. Well, fuck you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and and this, this leads into too, and maybe you, can I help you? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Your cat has been vibing in the background (laughs) and I'm vibing it. He's like rolling around. He is rolling. I turned on his heating pad too, to kind of keep him in the bed. Um, You know, this, (laughs) this comes up a lot too in sci-fi and fantasy conversations is what the industrialized parts of the world consider to be the end of the world. Um, Like a quarter of the world's population right now lives in slums and many, many people, probably a lot of my, you know, relatives and ancestors back in India um, live the way that industrialized people think would be a horror, would be a dystopia if they had to live that way suddenly today. Whereas again, my people back there are somewhere, you know, like, oh, you know, no electricity, no, no running water, no fridge, no vaccines. Um, Wow. That's kind of our everyday. So thanks for the huge insult. Like, You know, to live like us is the end of the world, but we've always lived like this. So, you know, uh-huh. thanks a heap. <laughs> and then it's kind of like who who deserves to have that much power and that much say over how everybody in the world. Yeah. Acts, and it shouldn't I mean? be it shouldn't be Western society, but we're the ones that are going to ruin the actual biosphere for everybody. Oh, sorry. Um, our ruining. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, right. Have <laughs> actively, actively at this time. This is an in-progress thing, Premi. This is an in-progress <laughs> thing. This is a work in progress. Ooh, a really shitty work in progress, unfortunately. <laughs> but you, you mentioned something about like uh, uh, not wanting to be preachy and using characters and jumping in their heads to sort of uh, view a scenario based on the experiences and circumstances of these characters. And that's something that you did really well with your two new, basically like the books that most are coming out. Most soonest releases. <laughs> most the soon few- to be released. Yeah. I'm trying to think of yeah. how to phrase this. You know, I know, yeah. right? The two soonest ones of your five yeah. this year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the um, February and March ones. Exactly. So Butcher of the Forest yeah. and Se- The Siege of Burning Grass. Uh, we'll save the latter for next week's masterclass because uh, it's about war. But in the case of Butcher of the Forest, uh, do you want to tell us a bit more about that book? And what were some of the things that you wanted to explore through this? It's a, no- it's a novella, but it's like very much like a personal character study 
at the same time. Oh, yeah. Um, that, that definitely was the goal. So yeah, um, a friend of mine, um, their comp titles for it were, this is like Hansel and Gretel meets Annihilation. And I was like, mm-hmm. that's pretty good. Yeah. That's oh, pretty that good. Fucking perfect. That is. Yeah. And, and mine, when I, you know, when I was joking about it, uh, on, on Twitter, when I started writing it, I was like, well, it's like escape from LA meets, um, the fairy queen. And people were like, your comps are terrible. Like, no, but that's like, okay, they're a little dated. Like, yeah. the Fairy Queen was like the 1600s. But, um, I think, yeah, I think it's, the Hansel and Gretel meets Annihilation is better. Sorry. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I wish I had come up with that. I wish I had come up with that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's very much a coerced rescue mission. So, uh, Varys Thorne is, is a middle aged woman who is basically done with this shit. And everyone in her village knows not to go near the North Woods. Just, just don't. Don't. It never ends well. Um, it especially eats children. Don't let your kids go in there. So the kids don't. But the uh, tyrant and his armies who have conquered her country um, and moved into you know the area and built a nice big castle, um, his children don't know that. So they have gotten lost in the woods and she has one day to bring them back or else. And the or else is the tyrant will kill her remaining family and probably the rest of the village. So she's she's pretty motivated. She's pretty motivated. But again, there's there's kind of that horror element. She's not doing this because she wants to. She's doing this because her agency has been removed from her. And all she can do at this point is her best because she's running up against a ticking clock. Um, and it's also kind of a riff on, I guess, every, um, every fairy tale where illogical things happen, but we accept it because it's not a real place. It's the world of the fairy tale. And also I wanted to see if I could write a book about fairies and fairyland without ever saying the word. Like if you went to Varys and said, you know, Hey, look, there's a fairy behind you. She'd be like, there's a what? I, I don't, I don't know that word. Do you, do you know that word? So they're just you the, you accomplished the people that, that live in the woods. They're not really people. There's certainly things that live in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> beings yeah beings but that's that but that's the thing it's like it doesn't in the context of the story it it's not necessary to kind of break the illusion because it's it's both a fictional illusion in terms of what what she's experiencing but it's also an illusion in terms of what you the reader are immersing Mm -hmm. yourself into and there's talk of enchantment there's talk of of you know beautiful perfectly shaped apples in a tree that will kill you if you eat it. suspicious apples exactly where are your like 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 your little where's your wormholes yeah Yeah, where's the bruises where are the bruises haven't the birds been pecking at you like yeah exactly yeah (laughs) yeah i actually got my box of the the uk version so you can see there's it's foil and the apples just the apples are in gloss so they look like extra menacing (laughs) that's so cool i was very excited that happened like right before we started recording too so (laughs) (laughs) like book mail (laughs) book mail i got a box that annihilation comp is 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 really good because uh butch of the forest for me encapsulated something that that jeff vandermeer accomplished so well in that book and and the series which is the uncanny and sublime aspects of nature and how you played with that and and kind of using that fairy tale lens to be like 
the way people get lost in the forest and the sort of enchanting um, nature of that space to begin with, let alone in a fantastical realm where shit gets really horrifying and really <laughs> uh, just really creepy and the way in which animals and 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 the plants themselves become unreliable and that that kind of like that is nature in in real life too it's like so much oh, of yeah. it's unreliable because we're just helpless little like flesh we're, sacks because we're no longer <laughs> we're no longer used to it like this yes, is this is exactly. a running gag with my friends is that i got an environmental science degree so i would know which parts of the environment to avoid turns out it's a lot of them it is like a lot <laughs> A lot. Like it's most of it, <laughs> actually. It is actually most of it. And I think there are large areas we should just pave over so they don't touch me. But um, <laughs> my, I feel like my profs wouldn't appreciate me saying this. They're like, no, that's just your, because that's you almost plan. died in a bog once. And I was like, actually, it was a fen. And I did almost die. But like, <laughs> like I hold a grudge against it. I resent, I resent that. I resent that low area and how moist it was. And they don't, they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and here but you yeah, are. let's like, pave over it. So it has. Let's pave over so, it. Let's pave over it. Fuck albedo. Let's just drop this concrete yeah, yeah. on top of. It. Like the the whole North Woods. Let's just pave the North Woods. Exactly. But like, <laughs> the tyrant would do that. He would. the tyrant probably would if he dared. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very much a case where it's like, again, the, the people who have been in that area for thousands of years, um, they have all the knowledge. Um, and you know, most of that knowledge is stay the fuck away, but like, they also have the knowledge to survive in there and navigate if they need to. And it's the outsiders who come in and try to sort of bulldoze the insiders and discover that they have made a serious mistake. Um, and, and I guess, you know, without, without spoilers for the ending, but, uh, there is a price to pay. There are prices the whole way through the book because that's how fairy tales work. Um, and, and you don't know necessarily what the price will be asked. You don't know whether you'll be able to negotiate. You probably shouldn't. She only does it out of desperation and you don't know if you have the currency or if they'll accept it. So there's just all this, uncertainty and all these power imbalances and the frantic trying to grab at power long enough to simply survive. Um, so I really enjoyed leaning into that. Uh, that was, that was, I hoped a big thing in the story is, is how that seems fairly cut and dry, but it shifts and shifts and shifts and shifts again. Um, like Varys is never on a firm footing. <laughs> Yeah, but neither neither are the creatures that live in the no, in the and supernatural them neither. Life. And her just yeah. coming in there disrupts it. Exactly. Yeah, and they're kind of just like, oh shit, she, yeah. she's got she's got cheese. Yeah. Oh, like, <laughs> oh man, you know I want I want some cheese. Like I recently read a review of the book uh, where it was being like, well, you know, she goes into the forest with all these rules, but then she immediately breaks them. So that was an inconsistency. I was like, no, again, she's breaking them out of desperation. And she suffers the consequences of breaking the rules, but there's no other way to make progress. And at the same so, time, it's it's it happens multiple times where she realizes it happens that multiple the, times. that the but also that the environment is like bewitching her and kind of steering. Yeah, her and that she's being that tricked she, into yes. breaking the rules. Yeah, yeah. like right, which goes back to things that water element, there. right? Yeah, yeah. like the freaking trees away. are trying to yeah. trick you. Yeah, the freaking rocks are trying to trick you. It's just <laughs> there's no way yeah. to say. There is nowhere safe and nice. <laughs> <It's> just... 
this well, is not a nice fairy tale. Fascinating. <laughs> well, that's, I'm wondering if the fairy tale piece, because it's, I mean, like you said, it's a novella, and this is a lot of characterization, a lot of really uh, vivid and inventive world building that you have condensed in a pretty slim page count, which is <laughs> impressive. Um, oh, so you. I'm curious, <laughs> wh- why the novella format? Did you choose that from to mimic a fairy tale kind of vibe or what was the, what was the, uh, inspiration? I think it's, I think in a lot, in a lot, a lot of cases. So I really like working at the novella length, as you can tell, like four out of my five books out this year are novellas. Um, and I already have like five out, but like, um, sometimes you just, you have an idea and you kind of weigh it in your hand and you're like, if this was a novel, I would have to really build this up and out. And eventually, I think I would distract from kind of the through line, like the heart of the story. Um, But also, I want to put in more than I could put into a short story. And that's where I land on novella. So it just, it keeps kind of the purity of the premise. Um, And you can't really have, you know, too many subplots or, or too much world building. A novella really leans on the reader, no matter what genre it is. It's It's asking the reader to do a lot of work. It's almost... Uh, like a short story in that respect where you have to really, you know, be as efficient as you can, but um, it allows you to get a little bit deeper into what you want to explore in the story without having, you know, a a fairly simple idea have to hold up for like 90,000 words as it would with a novel like this. To me, this wouldn't have worked at novel length. Um, There's just, there's just no way. Yeah. It's kind of like what, what the story itself can sustain and yeah yeah like reading it 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 felt like the perfect length and same with the annual migration of clouds it's like oh thank you <laughs> you know you 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 immerse yourself in in this this story and these characters but nothing overstays its welcome and that you're totally right like some ideas if handled improperly can succumb to bloat and 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 things that will bog the story down and in turn bog the reader down and they're more likely to put it down and never pick it up again whereas in novel it's kind of like oh yeah like less than 200 pages like yeah anytime we have a guest where it's like you know, some of them it's like, oh shit, they have an 800 page book. Yeah, right. It's like, like it's gonna be oh, good, but it's gonna be got, so long. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes it's like, oh, they have novellas, and we're so excited when they have novellas too. Yeah, well, and I'm just a sucker for a novella, anyways. Like, yeah, yeah I think, yeah, like I just love it. I think like, maybe, you can just uh, you can I, sit there for like just an afternoon and like wrap up in a blanket and read the whole thing. Oh yeah, like, you can c- knock out a whole novella in a day. And I think uh, you've kind of uh, articulated something I never really thought of why I like them so much is that it is it's a very consistent through line with like uh, one very resonant, uh, you know what I mean, theme that you can really yeah, like, yeah. sink your teeth into. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, I love a novella. <laughs> I love a novella. <laughs> are you gonna Are you gonna expand on this world at all, or do you think it's like just whatever happens naturally? Uh, if I haven't written anything else in this world, um, I haven't planned any sequels or anything. But again, um, if it's like this is been all my previous books too, is I don't plan. And then sometimes the publisher comes back and is like, Hey buddy. Hi. <laughs> Long time. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I find myself writing a sequel. <laughs> yeah. So that has not happened in case anyone's interested, but Tor.com, um, they're going to come knocking back someday. Yeah. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? You're yeah. like, they could. <laughs> call me, but don't yeah. actually call me because I'm a millennial and I won't pick up. But, you know, like, yeah, call me. Text me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, hey, preemie, like, come back yeah. with, like, two but like, I, but, like, I wouldn't stuff. not because, again, it's it's an ending that leaves a lot of hanging threads. Some of the big ones are resolved, but some of the other ones are still dangling. Right. Just and again, that's very fairy tale. You know, like we it get is, to the yeah. end of a fairy tale and no one's like, oh, you know, did the mice turn back into people? Or like, did the- <laughs> is everybody okay? Uh, what happened to the emperor with his new clothes or whatever? And, you know, that's all left hanging because that's how fairy tales go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. Because we've gotten to the, the meat of the story. Yeah, we got to the meat of the story. Yeah. <laughs> Especially like the, the older fairy tales, not like the reimagined. Yeah, yeah. Like the old. Yeah. Like the original ones. Is everyone okay? Like, no. Yeah. No. Exactly. Exactly. Never. Is everyone alive? Yeah. No. Yeah. Has no. anyone Has anyone been eaten? Several people. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's like getting into this, we should have thought that the Grimm brothers would write yeah. Grimm stories. Yeah. <laughs> and people so were like, no, 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 no. We don't believe in nominative determinism. And we're like, maybe in this case, though? We just want happy endings. Right, like, That's but do we, we though? <laughs> yeah. No, pretty much. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, speaking of sequels and, you know, things like that. Um, what, what else, you know, what are you working on moving forward? What does the future hold for you? Five books this year aren't enough. We're greedy. We want more. What else? Oh my God. (laughs) Uh, I should have a couple of short stories coming out, uh, this year in the next little while. Um, and I have lost track of what they are. So if I remember, (laughs) I'll email you. Um, what I'm working on currently is the, uh, third book in that annual migration of clouds trilogy, uh, getting ready to hand that in. And then there's some stuff I can't talk about because we haven't made it public yet. So publishing secrets, eyeball emojis, (laughs) because publishing secrets. Yeah. Big eyeballs, eyeballs, blink, blink. Um, (laughs) But yeah, when when I'm allowed to announce that, everybody will know. But let's just say that there will be more material coming from me in the future. Wow, that's vague. There will be more material <laughs> coming from there me there in the future. Publishing tweet. <laughs> Hashtag vague publishing tweet. Hashtag good news. And uh, yeah, I um, you know, I'll I'll be at a couple of uh, literary festivals and stuff this year, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm currently the writer in residence at the Edmonton Public Library, so. Uh, the main thing that I'm working on these days is library programming, which is very exciting. Um, trying to trying to drag people in and like throw my author friends under the bus. Like, hey, buddy, do you want to come <laughs> talk to some strangers about middle grade novels? That kind of thing. So, <laughs> um, I love it. Yeah. Well, you know, part of the job is is leveraging those connections with other writers and and with editors and agents and publishers and things. So, if there are people whose brains I can pick uh for specific writing things then i will go pick them <laughs> so yeah. that's been a lot of hey, fun that's what so we're far. doing right now <laughs> exactly. yeah oh no my brains are being picked yeah, yeah. Right. I'm just like yeah I'm watch out <laughs> like what's that what's that noise yeah it's it's, it's brains right it's brains <laughs> mj and i are greedy zombies yeah. We are. Right. Well, Premi, to close out, I would like to ask you a two-part question. If you could give, uh, give viewers and listeners a good bit of soundbite writing advice and B, tell us a weird or random fact that you find to be utterly fascinating. 
Oh no, I know so many random facts. I don't know. Um, what's a good piece of writing advice? Oh, uh, here. I just did a talk about um, dialogue for a friend earlier in the week. So um, strong dialogue in fiction uh, should not sound like conversation because conversation is not dialogue. Dialogue is narrative and dialogue has a job. The purpose of dialogue is not for the reader. It is never for the reader. It is always for the benefit of the other characters because fictional characters do not know that they are fictional characters and they should not be talking like they are. End of sentence. Because <laughs> it I bugs like me it. when I see that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, like this is yeah. <laughs> the, amount of, the amount of ums and uh, blah, and like all the shit that humans. Yeah. Like, in like in real. In real yeah, conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Or disasters. like saying goodbye on the phone. Right. Like it's a trope that people don't do that in movies and stuff. And it's like, of course they don't. <laughs> of course they don't. Yeah. It doesn't because... compel the narrative to do that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Did I already use up my fact by, by saying the Gene Wolfe thing? <laughs> that was really good. That was really good. That was good. <laughs> you got another? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I, I guess I could go with a very easy one uh, and, and be like, uh, did you know that sharks uh, are older than trees? Yeah. Sharks evolved like 450 million years ago and trees uh, didn't evolve until like 300 million years ago or whatever it was. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, so sharks are older than a crap load of things. Uh, they're older than the North Star, which only uh, came into being about 70 million years ago. So <laughs> sharks are weird. Sharks are weird. Awesome. You know sharks what? are awesome. ahead of the curve. They're, they're always know, ahead of the curve. Perfected yeah. early in the game. <laughs> Any curve you can think of, a shark got there first. <laughs> Evolution was like, no notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why they no, have like perfect. so many rows. That's because that's why they have so many rows of teeth. Because we're just like, yeah. we're growing this shit like nobody's business. We've had millions of years to do this. Yep, Fuck we're it. doing it perfectly. Keep growing them. Like <laughs> hammerhead sharks. Like even if you think we're ugly, we're perfect. And I'm like, I can't yeah. argue. Who can argue with that? <laughs> like look, looks aren't everything. That argument. Oh my god, yeah. the sassy shark. This is so good. The sassy hammerhead. <laughs> Oh my god! Well, on the on that note, on that sassy note, uh, Freemi, thank you so much for chatting with MJ and I today. Uh, also, for anyone who contributes to our Patreon at ten dollars or more each month, you can hear an exclusive reading by Premi from Butcher of the Forest, which is a fantastic novella. Uh, you can go pick that up. Um, I believe on February twenty. When is it? Seventh. 27th would be the Tuesday. So not yeah, this episode, yeah. but the next <laughs> yeah. episode. You go pick that up. It is an excellent yeah. read. Oh, thank um, you so much. And thank you guys for inviting me. Oh, an absolute pleasure. Um, could you let everyone know where they can find you online? Uh, yeah, I am on Blue Sky most of the time now, as opposed to Twitter, the hell site. Um, and you can find me there. Uh, I'm there under my website. So that's premimohammed.com, where I try to keep it up to date as best I can um and sometimes fail and uh, i'm occasionally also on instagram at premisaurus and i also have a patreon so patreon.com slash nice all right you can also follow sff addicts on instagram twitter threads blue sky all that jazz at sff addicts pod you can follow me at adrian m gibson mj what about you yeah, you can find me across all the socials uh at mj coon books all one word um or just mjcoon.com and at mjcoon.com, you can sign up for a free, or you can sign up for the newsletter for a free story. Uh, yeah, the same get a free novelette if you sign so up for my that. newsletter. And then go, and then go support her, her, her babies over here. Here, 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I am not James S.A. Corey, unfortunately. No, You're no. pointing. Yeah, go, go, go support uh, the <laughs> I mean, support that too. It's a great series. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, stay tuned next week for part two with Premium for a mini masterclass on war and speculative fiction. Now, keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts. <laughs>